Acts chapter 15, 1 to 31, hear the word of the Lord. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you, with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So, 
When they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. The story has been told so many times that I'm guessing it's true. If you go to Calvary Chapel circles, and many of you know of the Calvary Chapel churches, you will find their creation story. And that is the story of how Calvary Chapel got going out in California with a young pastor named Chuck Smith. He had been called from another church to this church, and they began to grow because he was quite a preacher and an evangelist. But there was a problem in the church. As it began to grow, some barefoot hippies began to go to church. And they were getting their dirty feet all over the church's nice carpet. And so they went to Chuck and they said, Chuck, we got to do something about this. Uh, They're ruining our carpet, these barefoot hippies. And Chuck said, I would rather get rid of the carpet than get rid of the barefoot hippies. And that church has exploded, not just that local church, but all around the United States and even in the other parts of the world, because they said yes to those who were wanting to come. They said, come on in, and they did not put obstacles in their way. Now, we are about 10 years, in Acts chapter 15, we're about 10 years after the start of the church. And during these 10 years, it was looking to some like too many of the wrong sort of people were coming in. The first one was an Ethiopian, and he didn't cause any problems because he went back to where he belonged, some might think. He went back to his country, back to what they called Ethiopia, which was what we would call Sudan. And so it didn't present his conversion and his baptism didn't present any sort of crisis to the church. But then then Peter was called to go to the house of Cornelius and he preached to a whole household of people, the the friends and the family, and the whole household came to Christ and were baptized. And, And that began to stir up some problems in Jerusalem. And when Peter got back to Jerusalem, they said, what are you doing, Peter? You went into the house of of Gentiles? And then he explained how God had received those Gentiles and He had marked them out. That He had received them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just like He had done to those original Jewish believers. But after all, one household, the Jewish church could, could absorb that sort of thing. It's one household after all. But then, things really began to get out of hand, because... After the persecution of Stephen, people went all over the place. And they began to speak not only to Jews, and and not only to Samaritans, which was a big jump for the Jews as well. They began to preach to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles began to pour into the church. And we found that in Antioch, that the church was exploding. And they had to send Barnabas to find out what was going on. And then Barnabas recruited Paul, and then that church sent them out to reach even more Gentiles and Jews as well. Uh, in the surrounding areas. Well, this was really, really getting out of hand. And all these Gentiles were quickly outnumbering 
the Jewish Christian believers. And so some had this idea that they needed to put a stop to this. They needed to get some control over this out-of-control situation. So they took it upon themselves to go to the Gentiles and to explain to them what they needed to do. That's what we find in verse 1 of chapter 15 of Acts. They say, it says here, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. So they went to Antioch, and apparently they went to other cities as well. Apparently they went on to the cities of South Galatia, and they were teaching the brothers. These are the Gentile, the non-Jewish believers in Jesus. They were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Good that you believe in Jesus, but you're not really saved unless you become a Jew. And for the males to become a Jew, they needed to be circumcised. They said, okay, this will get things under control. So everybody in the church will be Jewish because they will have become Jewish converts. And if you go down to verse 5, jump down there, we see what circumcision meant. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So circumcision, that right in itself, carried with it obligation. And the obligation was to keep the law of Moses. And in their minds, in their minds, the law of Moses was a unity. It would have meant all the law. All the law from the first five books of the Old Testament. The law of Moses, the Torah. Now, we see developing in the New Testament, and we find this in the Old Testament as well, but it becomes clear in the New Testament, distinctions among types of laws. We have, for example, in the Ten Commandments, we have the moral law of God. And then we have all these laws that have to do with the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices. And we call those ceremonial laws. And then we have other laws that happen to do with the political nation of Israel. Because it was not only the people of God, it was a political nation with a political structure. And we have all these laws about the courts and witnesses and rulers and kings and and so on. And so we have these three sort of laws. We have the moral law, we have the ceremonial law, and we have the civil law. But in the New Testament, the distinction gets clear. Why? Because the moral law is reaffirmed in the New Testament. The Ten Commandments are reaffirmed in the New Testament as valid always. And we also find that the ceremonial law was passing away and it was unnecessary because Jesus fulfilled it all. And then in 70 AD, it was over because the temple was destroyed. And if you read the book of Hebrews, you find that Jesus fulfilled all of that law, so it is exhausted. It is no more. And then we have the the civil law for the political nation of Israel. Well, guess what? The political nation of Israel also disappeared. And so all of those laws that had to do with the political nation of Israel, they became moot because there was no more political nation of Israel. Now, this is a distinction we can see better than they could. When when they were saying they they need to obey the law, they were thinking of all of the law, and the temple was still standing at that point. Now, Paul and Barnabas, in verse 2, hotly disputed with them. There's a a very hot disputation going on here. It says, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension 
and debate with them. Then they sent Paul and Barnabas up to Jerusalem with some other brothers from Antioch, Gentile brothers, to go talk to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now, we have the older church in Jerusalem, we have the newer church in Antioch. And the newer church was consulting the older church. And particularly because the apostles were still there as the leaders of the older church. And these, after all, these were the ones who were the direct followers, the direct disciples and trainees of Jesus. But it says that the apostles and the elders, the presbyters, dealt with the matter. And what we find in the church is that once the apostles pass off the scene, or if there are no apostles, like in the Gentile churches that Paul and Barnabas started, they established elders, and the elders carried on the ministry. This is a parenthesis, but when people say, what does it mean to be a Presbyterian? To me, to be a Presbyterian means that you have presbyters, that it's a church that is directed by elders, which is the structure we find in the New Testament. And here we find the elders, the apostles, and the whole church gathering together to decide this matter. Now, along the way, as they were going to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas visited other churches in Phoenicia and in Samaria. And they were telling in detail about the conversion of the many Gentiles. And the result was that there was great joy. There was great joy in verse 3. They passed through Phoenicia, Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Then they got to Jerusalem. And notice these details that Luke is emphasizing here. They got to Jerusalem. They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. So we have the whole congregation of the church there in Jerusalem. We have the leaders, the apostles, and the elders. And they welcomed them. And we find in in Luke's account here, many, many expressions of affirmation of Paul and of Barnabas and of what they were doing. And then they began to declare all that God had done with them. And so there was this this welcome, this reception, but that's when the, the party of the Pharisees who had believed in Jesus rose up and said, no, 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 no. We need to tell them to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. Now, now we have this, this meeting, and it starts in verse 6. The apostles and the elders gather together, and it looks like they gather together with the whole church present. So this is a a congregational meeting, and the elders and the apostles are presiding here. And what they did is they debated. Now, we don't have the debate. It says in verse 6, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate. Well, we don't have the debate. All we have are the final closing speeches. And we have Peter, and we have Paul and Barnabas giving witness, and then we have James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was the leader or one of the primary leaders in the Jerusalem church. Now, let's listen to these, these speeches, the end of the debate here. Peter argued in a few different ways. Peter stood up and said, You remember the situation with Cornelius, don't you? Now, of course, the the party of the Pharisees would would say, yes, we remember that, and we wish you hadn't done that, or we wish you'd handled that differently. But he says, you remember. 
you remember how God chose me to preach to them and how God made no distinction between us and them. He gave them the Holy Spirit just like He gave us. So that's argument number one according to Peter. And then he also pointed out that the Jews themselves, the Jews themselves had not been able to meet the requirement that some of them were trying to place upon the Gentiles. So he says, brothers, this is not fair. Our fathers were not able to do this. Read the Old Testament, folks. Were the Jews able to do the law that God had given them? No. Even though they were obligated to do it. And he says, they weren't able to do it. We haven't been able to do it. Why are you putting God to the test by requiring the Gentiles to do what we couldn't do? So he's, he's pointing out the, the, the inequity of that, that, the unfairness of that, and their own failure along the way as well. And then he says, if you want a, if you want a summary statement here of, of Peter's speech and of the gospel message, look at verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. I don't know why this is translated in a future here, because it's really a present tense, and it's really stating something that's always true. It says, Peter said, But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they are. A general statement. How is anyone saved? That's the question here. Well, the answer he's giving is, we are saved, they are saved, anyone is saved through the gift of God in Jesus Christ. That's the only way. Nobody is saved by doing something. Nobody is saved by doing the law, even though the law is good and righteous and pure. Nobody is saved by doing any law. The only way that anybody is saved is as a gift, as a favor, as a grant, as a grace of God. The only way that any can, anyone can be saved is by receiving that gift. And we receive that gift by faith. It is a gift that has been paid for. It is a gift that has been purchased. It is a gift that has been acquired by Jesus Christ, by His perfect life, by His substitutionary death, by His resurrection on the third day. It is a gift bought and paid for, and it is offered to whom? It is offered to Jews. It is offered to Gentiles. And the only way that any of us will enter into the salvation that is bought therein is by receiving it as a gift through faith. And Peter makes that that general declaration here. And then, that was one of those speeches that silenced the congregation. And so Barnabas and Paul saw their opportunity to interject. In verse 12, they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And so they were giving corroborating evidence that this is how Gentiles are saved, this is how Jews are saved, because God gave signs to testify to the fact that this is the one way of salvation. And after they finished, now James gets up. James gets up. Now, what we have from church history is a portrait of James that he stayed in Jerusalem, he became a leader, the leader of the Jerusalem church, and that he as a Christian, walked and lived as a pious Jewish man all of his life. 
And if, as we suppose, he wrote the letter that has his name, the letter of James, we pick that up. Because it is shot through with Jewish law and Jewish Old Testament wisdom. So, if the portrait we have of James is correct, the Pharisee party might have been saying, okay, now we got our man. Now we're going to have the last word. Now we have our speaker. And he's going to put Peter and Paul and Barnabas in his place because he is our strict Jewish representative. And he gets up and he says, listen to me. And then he calls Peter Simeon using his Jewish name. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. And so he backs up Peter by saying, yes, he's told us, he's reminded us of what happened that day in the house of Cornelius. But the way he says it is fascinating. He says how God first visited the Gentiles. And this is a, an expression from the Old Testament that comes into the New. When God visits His people. So God visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for His name. This also is an expression that comes from the Old Testament. A people for His name. Well, the Bible talks about God taking a people for His name, but what is that people in the Old Testament? It's the the Israelites. It's the Jewish people that He took them out of the nations. He called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's the people for His name. And to whom is James applying this most Old Testament Jewish expression? He's applying it to the Gentiles. He says that God has taken not just one nation as a people for His name. He is taking from all the nations a people for His name. And then he says, I'm not making this up. This is what the prophets said would happen. And he quotes one of the, what we call the minor prophets. The, the minor prophets were grouped in a, one scroll in a section. And, and he refers to one of those as Amos. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. And here, interestingly, he quotes from the Greek version of the Old Testament. And the Greek version of the Old Testament, the translation's a bit different, and it emphasizes the fact that not only is God going to, is Israel going to possess the nations, but God's going to possess the nations as His own. After this, verse 16, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And here, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from all. So he affirms Peter and then he, he calls the Gentiles a, a people for his name. And then he says the prophets are in agreement. So he is backing up Paul. He's backing up Barnabas. He's backing up Peter. He's backing up the inclusion of the Gentiles, this strictest of Jewish believers. And then he makes a judgment. And he speaks rather authoritatively here. He says, I judge. I judge. It's translated here, therefore my judgment. I judge that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should hang out a welcome sign. We should say, y'all come in. We should say that everyone is welcome here. Everybody may come in through faith in Jesus. But then he says, you know, there are some, some things that we really should emphasize, though. We don't want to trouble them like those other people were doing with burdens 
that nobody can carry. But, but the Gentiles have certain characteristics that make, make things difficult in the church. And we recognize that churches, many churches in those days, were made up of Jews and Gentiles. And we don't want to have the Jews over here and the Gentiles over there. We're one body. We're one people. And so, he gives this, this recommendation. Now, by the way, this recommendation has been interpreted in various ways. And it's not entirely clear to us exactly what he was saying here. And that's why there are various interpretations. But we'll do our best with it in the context here. And this is the recommendation. But should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So four things. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What is, what are these, these things? There, there's food polluted by idols. There is blood. There is strangling of animals. And there is sexual immorality. Now, the hard thing about this is these, these don't seem to fit in the same category. So some people say, well, all of these were ceremonial things. And the whole idea here was just to, to enable Jews and Gentiles to sit down at the table together. Uh, and so these were all ceremonial things. They weren't moral laws. They were just some things that they should do if they had, uh, had a, a fellowship meal and they were going to eat together. Because Jews wouldn't eat uh, meat with blood in it. And if it's a strangled animal, then uh, there's still blood in it. And if it's been sacrificed to idols, the Jews don't want to be around that, even though an idol is nothing and it's not a problem there. But this is just a prudential thing. Some people read it that way. Others say, no, these are moral laws. And the blood refers to murder, and they make, make all of these moral laws. So, so reaffirming the Ten Commandments, and, and they should, should obey these things. I think it's probably neither of those. I think it is probably this. Three prudential recommendations that had to do with enabling Jews and Gentiles to eat together, and one moral law that Gentiles had a particular problem with, and that was sexual immorality. So I think the, the first three, and when you go to the letter that was written, the order is different. And the order groups the, the ones that have to do with food together. Uh, things sacrificed to idols, blood and strangling, those are the first one, and then sexual immorality is put by itself. So it looks like we want you to be able to sit down together. So Gentiles, make provision for your Jewish brothers, be sensitive to them, and um, so that you can sit down together, because you don't have to eat meat with blood in it, you don't have to eat meat that's offered to, to idols, you, you, you can avoid those sort of things, that's not a burdensome request for you. So, so take into account the scruples of your Jewish brothers, so that you can sit down to a meal together in the church and be one body. But there is a thing that you Gentiles have a particular problem with, and that is sexual ethics. And so, um, we're going to remind you of, of the high standards to which you're called as believers in Jesus Christ. Because you weren't accustomed to live like that in the past. But now you've been called to this, this high standard. And then it says here, kind of intriguingly, Moses has in every city those who proclaim him. In other words, I think it's saying that the you Gentiles, you've already heard about this. 
You've already heard about the Ten Commandments. You've already seen how Jews lived. This is not new to you. And you've already seen from afar the, the, the purity of the, the sexual ethic of the Scriptures. And so this is not a new thing to you. And you are being called to this same high standard of purity. Now, if that reading is correct, and I think that's probably the, the majority reading among scholars of this, this dictate, then what does it mean for us today? Well, unless we happen to be in a church, which is less common than it was at the first, unless we happen to be in a church with a large percentage of Jewish people and a large percentage of Gentile people, uh, and unless we happen to live in a country where our, our food is sacrificed to idols before it's served, or, or whether we're a, a country in which we're invited to go to, to pagan ceremonies where food is sacrificed to idols, unless we are in that sort of situation, some of our brothers and sisters around the world are, but if we're not in that situation, then these prudential uh, recommendations don't really apply to us. We're, we're not facing these issues. Now we may be facing other issues about crossing cultures and, and taking each other into account so the principle is still good for us to take others into account so that we can sit down together. But there is this moral question here. And not only the Gentiles of that day had trouble with sexual immorality, but the Gentiles of this day have trouble with sexual immorality. And if you read the New Testament, you find that it was a constant problem that the, the Gentile sexual immorality would seep into the church and seep into the church and seep into the church and it would be sometimes affirmed as a possibility for Christians. And so they're raising the standard here and saying, Gentiles, don't go the way of your, your compatriots you're called to something higher and purer and more beautiful. So we need, to, we need to do that as well in our day, in which I have to say uh, that I have found in, in the church, the, the church, the, the evangelical church, the church that says the Bible is the Word of God and, and takes it seriously, I have found in, in too many of our circles a very lax approach to sexual immorality. An acceptance of it that it's, well, this is how things are these days. As if the day in which we live has something to do with the, the legitimacy of the Ten Commandments. And so we need to remember this call from this letter and this high call as Christians. And what is? The great thing about New Testament sexual ethics is they're so simple. They're so simple. Sex is for marriage between a man and a woman. That's it. It's not complicated, folks. This is the context. This is the Christian sexual ethic. It's a beautiful gift of God for a man who's married to a woman. That's Christian sexual ethics. Outside of that is sexual immorality. And so this is not a complicated situation to deal with. But it is one that we have constantly stumbled over. Now, that is the decision. That's the, that's the debate, the end of the debate. And it carries the day. It carries the day. Because apparently everybody's in agreement. We don't have evidence of a vote or anything. But it, it carried the day and they were all in agreement. And then they decided to send the letter saying this thing to the Gentile Christians. 
And in this letter, which we find in verses 22 and 23, they say just what they had decided, but I want you to notice what they did here. First of all, they addressed the Gentiles as brothers. They addressed them as brothers. Verse 22, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Barnabas and Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas. We don't know anything more about Judas, called Barsabbas. Silas, who became a companion of Paul, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. And here's the letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the whom? To the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Antioch was the capital of Syria. Syria was the province that governed Cilicia. So this was a regional letter, and it's addressed to them. And it says here that those who went out and preached circumcision... We did not authorize them. So they disavowed the troublemakers in verse 24. And then in verse 25, they mentioned Barnabas and Paul, and they called them, called them our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they disavow the troublemakers. They affirm Paul and Barnabas. And then they say, we are sending you this letter. We're sending two men to testify and to confirm the, the letter, Judas and Silas. And then they say this, verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. That's a fascinating statement, isn't it? So they're not saying just, these are our recommendations. They're saying, this is the Holy Spirit's voice speaking through uh, the church here. And then they, they say the requirements again in a little different order, different words. And then at the end they say, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. The tone of this is very brotherly. It's authoritative, but it's not heavy-handed. They say, this is for your good. You will do well if you do this. And now look at this. Verse 30. So they took the letter. They went out. They went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Because of its encouragement. Now, it's, it's probably difficult for us to imagine how momentous a decision this was. Maybe we could understand how momentous this was if we would imagine in our minds, what if the party of the Pharisees had won? What if they'd won the day? And that in order to become a Christian, you have to become a Jew first. How many Christians would there be in the world today? If we all had to submit to the law of Moses, all of the law of Moses, in order to be Christians. How many Christians would there be there today? The, you, you get the idea of how important this decision was, this, this welcome mat, this welcome sign to the Gentiles. And I want you to see something else. That both times that it refers to the declaration of the inclusion of the Gentiles, the, the response is the same both times. It's joy. Do you remember what happened? Paul and Barnabas were making their way back to Jerusalem. They stopped in Phoenicia. They stopped in Samaria. And they were saying, the Gentiles are pouring in. They're coming in in droves. They're believing in God. And what did that cause in the, in the, in the already Christians? It says, they rejoiced greatly. And then they wrote this letter. And they sent it to the Gentile believers. And they received the letter. 
And what was their response to the letter? It says that they rejoiced because of its encouragement. How can we have joy as Christians? Well, there are probably a lot of answers to that. But I know we, how we can not have joy, how we can kill our joy. We can kill our joy by not wanting those people to come in. By wanting to keep the carpet and, and drive out the barefoot hippies. That will kill our joy. That will sap the joy of the inclusion of the Gentiles. And the other thing that we can do to sap our joy is to think that we and people like us really should be inside. Because we somehow uh, are appropriately here. If we have that sort of attitude, then we will lose our joy as Christians. But if we have the attitude, like we find here, of looking out to the nations, to the Gentiles, with, with all their languages and tribes and foods and customs and backgrounds and histories and say, oh, we rejoice when they come in. We're glad that they're in and they are our brothers and sisters. We will retain joy. And if, and if we will live our lives constantly amazed by this fact, we will also recover our joy and maintain our joy. And what's that fact? The fact that I was included in the first place. You see, when, when we lose our, our amazement that God would include us, then we lose our joy. And when we retain our amazement that God would accept me and that God would accept us, then we will have the same reaction that we have here. We will rejoice greatly. Let's pray. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain? For me who Him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, has died for me? Oh God, it is an amazing thing that You would accept somebody like me and that You would accept people like us. And I pray, O oh God, that we would never lose the amazement of the fact that we've been included by Your gift in Jesus, and through faith in Him. And therefore, that we would hold out a welcome sign as well and say to the nations, come on in. If God could receive us, God will receive you as well. If you will but place your faith in the One who died for sinners. And we pray this in Jesus' glorious and gracious name. Amen.